my pleasure tonight to introduce Dr. Thomas Ice. He's the executive director of the Pre-Trib Research Center located at Calvary University in Kansas City, Missouri. He founded the center in 1994 with Dr. Tim LaHaye to research, teach, and defend the pre-tribulational rapture and related Bible prophecy doctrines. Dr. Ice has authored and co-authored over 30 books, written hundreds of articles, and is a frequent conference speaker. He served as a pastor for 17 years. He has a BA from Howard Payne University, a THM from Dallas Theological Seminary, a PhD from Tyndale Theological Seminary, and has done postdoctoral work at the University of Wales in the United Kingdom. Dr. Ice lives in Lee's Summit, Missouri, with his wife, Janice, who is joining him this evening. And they have three grown sons and seven grandchildren. Dr. Ice is uh, uh, hosting the Globalism and End Times Conference, which is part of the 30th Annual Pre-Trib Study Group in December. And so if you haven't had a chance um, to pick up one of these pamphlets, I'm sure that Dr. Ice would love to take uh, the time to go ahead and share this with you an opportunity for you to go and sit with some of the world's best scholars on the doctrine that we love and hold so dear. And we are honored and so thankful that Dr. Ice is a member of IFCA and that he's with us this evening to share with us from the Word of God. Let's welcome him. Shalom, y'all. Got to get my thing here. Okay. Uh, I'll never forget, right before a Greek exam, some guy who had been an offensive lineman at Southern Cal in college came in and did his best Rodney Dangerfield imitation and said, I don't have any problems of rapture with us all right now. I don't know how he did on the Greek test, but nevertheless, uh, that was a long time ago, and we're still waiting. But you know, the rapture is not something to escape from responsibility. It is a time in which we are going to be reunited with the one we love, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's part of God's plan for the church. So... Uh, I have a book that I did with LaHaye and Ed Heinsohn, and it's called The Popular Handbook on the Rapture. It's very extensive, if you're interested in that. And, whoops. Uh, okay, what happened here? I think something happened back there, yes. And uh, my latest book is The Case for Zionism. Uh, defending Israel and everything. And I have a very long chapter at the end, the history of uh, what the church has believed about Israel, which is uh, very interesting. And uh, we see that it was the Puritans 400 years ago that started becoming filio-Semitic and pro-Israel in their belief system. So it's not recent. And those are the people that settled our country. And our country historically has been that way, except now there seems to be a shift going on of some kind in that sense. So I don't know about you, I was involved in the Jesus movement, the last revival in the history of America. And uh, 1969, Larry Norman 
uh, Capitol Records came out with uh, his album where he's getting raptured on the cover. And uh, <clears throat> he had a song, I Wish We'd All Been Ready, that uh, was very popular back in those days. And then Hal Lindsey, the year later, came out with The Late Great Planet Earth. And that book, I remember getting my copy in 1970, right after it came out. And that was my first exposure to Bible prophecy. I grew up in a Southern Baptist church. Looking back, I found out my pastor was amillennial and preterist. Uh, so I wasn't exposed to a lot of this growing up, but I read the late great planet earth. And that was my first exposure to Bible prophecy. And that book is the number one selling book in the history of Christendom. And I remember back in the early nineties, it passed pilgrim's progress as the number one selling book in the history of America about the rapture and other related Bible prophecy things. And uh, I was a historical theology major at Dallas Seminary, and our professor used to say it takes about 40 years to be able to analyze, to look back and analyze a time period. And about 40 years after the Jesus movement came, uh, this book, Oxford Press, called God's Forever Family, came out. And uh, it talks about the number one book being Lego like Planet Earth, Larry Norman's I Wish We'd All Been Ready was the most popular song uh, that we almost had to sing every time we got together. And then he said the book estimated about 30% of North American hippies got saved. Think of that. That was the last revival. Any, any of y'all here? There's one back there. Two, three, yeah, four. There's another one. And uh, that was the greatest revival in the history of America, is the Jesus movement. Now, I was involved in that, but I wasn't a hippie. I was just a regular Baptist boy, you know, and uh, got, but I was involved in the movement. And it was a very different. Uh, people would go, we'd go witnessing. They, they didn't, run, you know, arrest you or try to run you off at the airport or on the drag in Austin where I grew up and things like that but nevertheless uh 40 years later things have really changed <laughs> seem to be heading in a very different direction so what is the rapture well the rapture is the translation of living believers to heaven without experiencing death in a moment of time it's not the resurrection resurrections for dead people uh the rapture is simply the translation to heaven of living people if you're alive when it occurs in a moment of time. There's no way to prepare for it other than to be prepared before that event happens because it's going to happen so quickly and fast that you'll never know what hits you if you're not prepared. So something like this uh, is going to happen. You know, you're just going along your normal everyday thing. Know, down in Australia, I think. I want you to know, church, that Jesus Christ could come this month, or he might come next week, or he could even come.
course, you don't want to be left behind, do you? That'd be a good name for a novel series, but... <laughs> the word rapture comes from the Greek word herpazo. I'm sure you've run into people that say the rapture is not in the Bible. Well, the Greek word herpazo means caught up to seize upon with force or to snatch up. And, uh, you know, if they had translated it with that term, we would call it the great snatch rather than rapture. But nevertheless, nevertheless uh, that word rapture comes from the Latin Vulgate, which, as you know, was the uh, translation for well over a millennium that the church primarily used. And the word rapio translated the word hapazo. And in, in the 1500s, 1600s, when European scholars got together, they came from different countries, different languages, and they all spoke Latin. You know, most of our early American books were written in Latin and stuff. That's what uh, the educated world used. And so that word, I have over 250 commentaries on First Thessalonians, and everybody, liberals, conservatives, in between, all use the word rapture to talk about that. So when people bring that up, it's, it's ridiculous. Uh, that is where it comes from. It comes from scholars, that, that term. Imagine that. And so I, I remember having a discussion years ago with R.C. Sproul about the rapture. And he thought we were crazy. Of course, that may be, but nevertheless, that inspired a chart that's in our chart book that Tim LaHaye and I did showing raptures in history. Do you realize there's a number of raptures throughout history? You have uh, Enoch, who was not, for he was taken before the flood. And I don't know the rationale for that, but nevertheless, you have an example of the rapture. You have Elijah, who was taken up in the chariot. He was raptured and went to heaven. You have uh, Isaiah, who was taken up into heaven and came back down with a revelation about what God had for him. And then, of course, you have uh, Jesus, who's lifted up into heaven at, in Acts chapter 1. And then you have, of course, Philip, who was sent to uh, evangelize the Ethiopian unit in what is now the Gaza Strip area. And apparently the Lord needed him back where he was and about 40, 50 miles away, and he was harpazoed, raptured from point A to point B on planet Earth. And then, of course, you have uh, the Apostle Paul, who in 2 Corinthians received a revelation about the rapture, and apparently uh, God thought it was important to bring him up into heaven to teach him that, but he came back down and taught about it. So the word harpazo is used twice in that context to describe and then, of course, you have uh, the ra actual rapture of the church uh, that we believe will happen at the end of the church age, and we are taken to the Father's house. So we're not taken up to come right back down, yo-yo rapture type stuff, uh, to go, but we go to the Father's house. And then, of course, you have the two witnesses in the middle of the tribulation who are killed, their bodies lie in the street for three and a half days in Jerusalem, and they're raptured. What a surprise. But the rapture of the church is simply the first time God's going to take a busload up at one time. And so you're going to want to be on that uh, group if you're alive. And so when you look at the rapture, 
uh, it relates to the church. It ends the church age. And, and this is important. Other rapture positions don't have a reason for it. Uh, there's no logic to it. Only pre-tribulationalism has a reason. And the purpose is to end the temporary church age. That's why there's an urgency about the church age to preach the gospel because it's the last hour. Why? Because you go back to Daniel's 70 weeks and he thought, you know, how long are we going to be in captivity? And in the 68th year, he receives revelation about the 70 weeks of seven. And Daniel apparently thought he's going to go back and the kingdom's going to come in, right? Uh, to Israel. And God says, no, I'm stretching it out to 490 years. And then you come to the end of the 69th week of Daniel, and it ended on the very day Christ rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And he said, had you known the time of your visitation, things which make for blessing and not for uh, judgment. And it was postponed because the six things in Daniel 9.24 that were said to be fulfilled, none of them had been fulfilled. And therefore, there's a gap, which was always part of God's plan, just not revealed, as Scripture says, the church age. So the purpose of the church age is to, the rapture is to end the church age so that God can do what? Complete the 70th week of Daniel that we know is a tribulation. That is the purpose of the rapture. No other view of the rapture has a specific purpose like that. And so that is, I think, an important point to be made about pre-tribulationalism. And so uh, the church is raptured, and there's an interval of time, days, weeks, months, or years, probably years, between the rapture that ends the church age and the 70th week of Daniel begins with the signing of the covenant between Israel and the revived Roman Antichrist. And so uh, that is the seven-year tribulation. Now, Jesus introduces the rapture. There's probably people here, like I believed at one time, that the rapture is in Matthew 24. You know, you used to say Matthew 24, knocking at your door and all that kind of stuff. But the rapture is not found in Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse. And uh, the Olivet Discourse was given two or three days before Christ died. The Upper Room Discourse, found only in John, was given the night before Christ died. And so the, he's dealing with Israel in the Olivet Discourse, and people begin to get into trouble if you try to see the rapture in the Olivet Discourse. Uh, but he reveals it for the first time after Judas leaves the room, and Thomas, I believe it is, says, where are you going? He says, let not your heart be troubled. In other words, you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If, I, if it were not so, I would have told you, for I go and prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you. Depends on if it's active or passage. I, I like the idea of taking there. Take you to myself, that where I am, the, there you may be also. And so Christ introduces the rapture along with church-age truth in the upper room discourse. And uh, so, 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 there we go. 
uh, Jesus uh oh delayed so-sos wow boy that really oh I know what I'm doing I, I was thinking that was reverse and I was hitting forward boy this takes time Okay, I got to go all the way through that again. Got to get raptured all over again. But that's okay. Uh, yeah, there we are. Jesus predicts uh, future revelation of the New Testament three times in the Upper Room Discourse. And here's an example of one of those passages where he says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. And so everything that Christ talks about, by the way, he says it two more times, something a similar statement in the Upper Room Discourse. And so when you look at John 14, 1 through 3, where Christ introduces the rapture for the first time, and uh, uh, a Mennonite scholar, J.B. Smith, in the 60s showed this, analogy there's an exact thought progression between john 14 1 through 3 and first thessalonians 4 13 through 18 and so that is the the beginning of the expansion of what christ introduces in the upper room discourse or church age truth you see and so you see that uh you have the exact same progression of eight thoughts in First Thessalonians 4. Now, Paul's first epistle was Galatians, right? He was dealing with the Jerusalem Council issue. And then his next two were First and Second Thessalonians. So right off the bat, when it comes to Paul writing Scripture, New Testament Scripture, is the introduction and in dealing with the rapture. And First and Second Thessalonians lays out many of the details of the church's eschatology. Because as we know, four times the New Testament says that the church age was not revealed in times past, even though it was part, part of God's original plan. <clears throat> so here we go again. There we go. Dr. Ryrie says, the upper room discourse serves as a seed plot of that which is found later in the epistles of the New Testament. And so here are some of the new revelations that were given. The raptures we pointed out, believers will do greater works. New Testament ministry of the Holy Spirit is laid out for the first time. Uh, the idea of abiding in Christ or the Christian life is spelled out. Uh, the world will hate followers of Christ. Uh, is that still true? The Holy Spirit will aid in evangelism. Uh, the course of the church age is spelled out. And prayer will be in the name of Jesus. So these are some of the new revelations called mysteries that are laid out in the upper room discourse that you won't find in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And uh, we see 1 Thessalonians being that major passage that talks about uh, the rapture. It says, but we do not want you to be uninformed and the implication in the original language is if you are uninformed, stop it. Stop it, brethren, about those who are asleep. Now, 
80, I think 83 times the New Testament uses the term for the death of believers is sleep, asleep. It's not soul sleep or anything. A person is fully conscious, as 2 Corinthians chapter 5 points out, fully conscious with the Lord. They just don't have their resurrected body. And in that sense, uh, Paul did not want to be found naked or without his body. But, of course, that did happen. Uh, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe, and we do, that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. Now, I thought the entire Bible was the word of the Lord, but I think when he uses this phrase here, he's talking about this is something he learned directly from the Lord, probably when he went up into heaven. You see, this was something specifically mentioned to him by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. And so apparently they were, they were wondering if they would see their loved ones again because some had died. And he says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. So this is kind of like a military command. The commander gives the command, the lieutenants share it, and then you have the trumpet or uh, general call to the troops as a whole. Uh, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. So this means the Episcopalians are going to be the first to go. Uh, and so, a little slow over there. And I remember actually one time in Northern Virginia, I spoke at an Episcopal church on the rapture. Can you believe that? And I had to use the Presbyterians, but nevertheless, uh, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. And there's the word harpazo, the rapture term, uh, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Uh, and thus shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And as we saw back in John 14, we go to the Father's house to be with him. Uh, because what? The tribulation is going to take place. And we're going to be up there during that time. So God's plan for Israel involves Israel being the head and not the tail and ruling over the nations during the millennial kingdom. God's plan for the church involves a remnant of saved Jews and Gentiles who are placed into one body in Christ during the present church age. And so that is what we believe as dispensationalists. We believe in dispensationalism because it was derived inductively from the study of scripture, uh, these things. This is how you can have, uh, see that uh, Israel is the only phase in God's plan that is paused and is unfinished. And that's where the church comes in, as I've already mentioned. So that's the, the point here. The church is a mystery, which doesn't mean it's mysterious. It means it's a secret. That's all it means. It was hidden, a hidden part of plan. It's always been part of God's original plan kept secret during the Old Testament, but has now been revealed primarily through Jesus and Paul's epistles. Uh, so the rapture teaching is said to be a mystery. In the Bible, is, mystery in the Bible is not something that is mysterious or hard to figure out. A mystery refers to a new revelation about something in God's plan. So we see this in Daniel as God used him to reveal aspects of his plans. That's called like 13 times in Daniel it's called a mystery there. 
And we see this in the New Testament in relation to the introduction of new truth related to Christ and his church. So the flow of God's plan that we see explained in Ephesians 3. Uh, it says to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the dispensation of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God. So this is one of those four passages that talk about how the church age was not talked about in the Old Testament. Uh who created all things in order that the manifold wisdom of God, now that's what we call a hapax legomena. Manifold wisdom means many-sided. It's only used once in the Greek New Testament. It is used like a diamond that is a single entity but has multiple sides to it. And so he's saying that God's plan is a single plan that has different phases, or we say dispensations, it says right here, dispensations, uh, might now be made known through the church. So that's the new phase that he's talking about. Uh, uh, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose. See, it's always part of God's plan, which he carried out in Christ Jesus. And so God, God in the development of scripture, first laid out his plan for Israel. And then he talked about the church after he laid out the plan for Israel. And the church is then going to be vacated, and then he's going to finish his plan relating to Israel while we're up safely up in heaven uh, doing all kinds of things. Also, the rapture is talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verses 50 to 51. And he says, now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. He's talking about church-age believers. Uh, in flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the millennium here that he's talking about. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. So it's said to be a mystery right here uh, that we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Now I saw that part of scripture on nursery one time. It said, we shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. And, uh, you know, it's taken out of context, but it's a truism, is it not? But here in this context, <laughs> he's talking about we shall not all die, but we shall all be changed. Every church-age believer will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Now, they measured it some fraction of a second for twinkle your eye. But that's going to be so fast, you're not going to be able to uh, do anything about it. At the last trump, uh, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed for this perishable must put on imperishable. You know, we're going to spend heaven, eternity with heaven with God, so we have to be changed. Uh, and this mortal must put on immortality. So here he talks about the rapture as well as a mystery. And so uh, when I first started working for Tim LaHaye 30 years ago at what be later became the Preacher of Research Center, uh, I sat down and, and put on one side all the rapture passages that I knew. And then I put second coming passages on the other side. And the more you see the differences between the rapture and the second coming, 
that is another important issue related to pre-tribulationalism because they're two separate uh, events. And so when you look at some of the differences, and I have the rapture depicted by my famous rapture symbol there, but the second coming is depicted very differently. And you can see in these graphics the difference between the two. And the, the rapture is the translation of believers, believers going up to heaven where there's no language about the translation at all because Christ returns to planet Earth at the second coming. At the rapture, translated saints go to heaven. But at the second coming, translated saints return to Earth. At the rapture, there's no judgment language. There's no, not one mention in all those passages about, the, about judgment. And, but, but the earth at the second coming, the earth is judged and righteousness is established. You talk about judgment, it's all over the place in conjunction with the second coming. In fact, that's the purpose of the second coming is with the tribulation that precedes it, he's going to clean up the planet and make it ready for the millennium. God's not going to just set up any kind of kingdom he's got to clean up the mess that we made throughout history and then he's going to set up his righteous kingdom at the rapture it's said to be imminent any moment or signless imminent means it could happen at any moment and this is a big problem for post-tribulationists they try to uh change redefine imminency and all of this it's something that could happen at any moment but if you don't hold the pre-trib view then you have to have events that precede it so therefore, as a, as a believer in the preacher of rapture, we're looking for Christ. All other views are looking for the Antichrist because he has to precede Christ before he can come back. And so eminence is a very strong argument for pre-tribulationalism. The second coming follows definite predictive signs, including the tribulation. There's hundreds of revealed signs leading up to the second coming of Jesus Christ. But there's nothing leading up to the rapture, just he could come at any moment. At the rapture, it's not predicted in the Old Testament, as I've already pointed out, but the second coming is predicted often in the Old Testament. Uh, the rapture is for believers only, and the second coming affects all mankind. Uh, the ra rapture is before the day of wrath, as we'll see it later. Uh, but the second coming is at the end of the tribulation, Matthew 24, uh, 29, after the tribulation of those days, then Christ returns. There's no reference to Satan in the, in the rapture, but Satan is bound at the second coming. Uh, Christ comes for his own, as scripture says, but he comes with his own. We come with him. Uh, after experiencing the, the marriage supper of the Lamb, uh, Christ, not, I take that back, the marriage of the Lamb, the marriage supper takes place, in my humble opinion, at the beginning of the millennium. The marriage takes place in heaven. Christ comes in the air. We go up to meet him. That's why there's not two future second comings. Because what was the first coming? Where Christ came and walked the dusty shores of Galilee, right? And then he left. The second coming is when he comes back to terra firma, to planet Earth, 
The rapture is us meeting him in the air. He doesn't return to planet Earth. So there's a, that qualitative difference between the two events. Whereas the second coming... Christ comes to the earth. At the rapture, Christ claims his bride. There's a lot of imagery on the, the Jewish marriage ceremony here and everything. Christ comes with his bride. Matthew, uh, Revelation 19 talks about the bride has made herself ready and comes back with him. Uh, only his own will see him at the rapture, but every eye will see him at the second coming. I don't know how that's going to work, but I'm sure he'll be able to pull it off. The tribulation begins after the rapture, but the millennial kingdom begins after the second coming. So the more you look at these differences, there are two separate events. And then there's an interval of events needed between the rapture and the second coming. The, you have the 24 elders in heaven who represent the church. They apparently have uh, experienced their uh, evaluation. You have the beam of judgment going on, probably about 45 to 50 passages that either teach or imply the beam of judgment for believers who are not going to be, who are going to be rewarded for uh, how they faithful they've been to serve Christ. That's the idea. It's kind of like a football player is judged according to his faithfulness to how he executed his position. So you can have a very high rating as an offensive lineman and a running back or quarterback could have an even lower rating because he wasn't as uh, efficient. And so we're going to be evaluated for how faithful we are to what God has called us to do during this age. And then the bride is said to be prepared and you have the marriage of the lamb followed by the marriage supper, which, by the way, you have to have guests at that. And so the marriage supper is going to take place after the second coming when the redeemed of the ages come together to celebrate the uh, marriage of the Lamb. So an interval is needed between the rapture and the second coming, and that is logic for that. The rapture is based on eminence, as I said earlier. What is that? It's an event that could, but not necessarily take place at any moment. Soon is not the same as rapture, as imminent. If I say I'm coming soon, that means within a short period of time. Imminence means he could come at any moment. An imminent event could happen soon or may not occur for over 2,000 years. No prophetic event must take place before an imminent event could occur. And so that's what it's saying. There's no other event that has to happen that's predicted before Christ could return. That's why the rapture is imminent. It's been 2,000 years. So the rapture is imminent while Christ's second coming is not. So here's some passages that teach or imply imminence. 1 Corinthians 1, 7, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, waiting for Christ who could come at any moment. 1 Corinthians 16, 22, Maranatha, our Lord come, is an Aramaic saying that implies expectancy. And we have all heard that the early church used to greet one another with this term Maranatha. Uh, 
Then you have Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's that term, eagerly waiting, uh, that's used a number of times. The Lord is near. That's the Greek word, engage, at hand. And the idea is uh, at hand means like within uh, 18 inches or so. And I like to use the illustration that um, there are two NFL franchises that the NFL championship was at hand. Buffalo and what's the other? What? Minnesota. And four times each team has been in the Super Bowl. gone to meddling <clears throat> and uh i think buffalo even had a lead with like one or two seconds left and they kicked the field goal right at the end and lost but i lived in buffalo one year with campus crusade at the university of buffalo but uh, i feel their pain and uh but even though the nfl championship was near you see it never arrived and so this is the idea of something at hand. So y'all like that illustration? <laughs> the Lord is near. That doesn't, and some people think means he's, he's arrived and all. No, that's not what it means. So uh, 1 Thessalonians 1.10 talks about how they turn to God from idols to serve the living and to wait for his son from heaven. Never are we said to be looking for the Lord in relation to the rapture? We're always waiting. There's nothing to look for. I'll, I'll talk about Titus 2.13 in a moment. There it is. Looking, in most translations, it's actually the Greek word for waiting. And uh, newer translations have, have done a better job of it's waiting for the blessed hope and the appearing of our, the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. So there, it's also the idea of waiting. In James 5, 7 through 9, be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord, for the coming of the Lord is at hand, in gaze. And that's the earliest book in the New Testament, isn't it? Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Now, we had the chaplains yesterday. I used to be a chaplain in the Army National Guard. And before that, uh, I <clears throat> didn't want to be, my girlfriend, who's now my wife, uh, didn't want me to be drafted. So she said, go join the National Guard. We're, we're living in Austin, Texas at the time. And uh, so I did. And the guy had me raise my right hand. And uh, he asked, are you willing to jump out of a perfectly good airplane? And I didn't know till that moment that I was joining in an airborne unit. <laughs> and uh, I did. And uh, I got a, a, a lot of jumps in before they disbanded us because airborne, they said, was becoming uh, irrelevant with air mobile and all of that kind of stuff. But that's a whole other discussion. And so in, in the process of jumping out of those perfectly good airplanes, there were six steps that you went through. And right before you got to the drop zone, one minute before, 
the jump master would, would say to the first guy in the stick, stand in the door. What did that mean? That mean once that green light came on, you either jumped out or they pushed you out. Uh, and so it means something's about to happen. And so the idea of the judge is standing at the door, this was in the book of James. It could happen. It's been 2,000 years. I know that the Lord doesn't get tired, so he can handle it. In 1 Peter 1.13, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that's our focus on Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ, his coming as a believer. You can't do that if you hold any other position relating to the rapture. Jude 21, waiting anxiously, there it is, for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. That idea of waiting anxiously means stay up waiting or looking for somebody or something. And then you have Revelation, I'm, the I am coming quickly passages that talk about this. He, and the preterists like to use this, these passages to say that it had to happen in AD 70 or something like that. But what's interesting, if you look in Bosta Brenner, which is the advanced Greek grammar uh, that some of you may use, it gives four types of adverbs. And it, two of the four are an adverb of chronology, which is what preterists assume that this uh, refers to. But actually, it's stated to be the, the example that they give in that grammar is of the, the Greek word uh, tachos. And uh, it means how something's going to happen, not when. So don't let a preterist fool you by saying, he says he's coming quickly, but I'd hate to, you know, it's been 2,000 years, I'd hate to send you out for hot sandwiches or something. Uh, it's how he's going to come. How's he going to come? Suddenly, you better be ready because, as I've been emphasizing, you're not going to be able to make a decision when it starts happening. And so that is what those refer to. Now, the 70 weeks of Daniel, as we pointed out, the tribulations for Israel, it's going to lead to those six things in verse 24 of chapter 9 of Daniel being fulfilled so that by the time of the second coming, apparently, according to Zechariah, two-thirds of the unbelieving Jews will be purged out so that all Israel will call on him and he will return. That's the condition for the second coming, as we see in Matthew, the end of Matthew 23. And so that tribulation is indeed for Israel. So the purpose of the tribulation is a time of preparation for Israel's restoration and conversion. It's called the time of Jacob's tribulation or trouble. It is uh, the completion of the 70th week of Daniel, as we've seen, and the church currently experiences tribulations, uh, but she will not experience the tribulation. In the world, you have tribulation. Yes, we do. So that also, the nature of the church, what's the purpose of the church? Well, it's the purpose of the church differs from that of Israel, as we've said. The church is a mystery, a secret, now revealed, it's not hard to understand, of Jews and Gentiles united in a co-equal body. The church is not appointed to wrath, as the scripture says, in other words, the tribulation. So we see in Romans 5, 9, it says, much more than having been now justified by his blood, 
we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. And by the way, the word arge, there's one disputable passage, always refers to something that happens in history. It, it doesn't refer to hell, for example, eternal. It always refers to events in history. So that is a reference to the tribulation, I believe. And then we see in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 through 10, how, about how they turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that, that is Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And then we see, for God has not destined us for wrath later on in that same book, for the, but for the obtaining of salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see that we're not going to experience the wrath of God. Uh, we experience the wrath of unbelievers, etc., but not God. The church is promised deliverance from the hour of testing in Revelation 3.10. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, endurance, I will keep you from the hour, the time of testing. And by the way, here is the purpose for the book of Revelation. That hour which is about to come on the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. And you have the earth dwellers referred to 11 times in the book of Revelation. Here's the first one. And not a single earth dweller ever becomes a believer. And so God is demonstrating that an unbeliever is an unbeliever is an unbeliever no matter what you put them through. Now, the last two references say because their names were not found written in the book of life, from the foundation of the earth. Now, I, th I think he's saying because they're not elect. So, the work of the Holy Spirit is also seen in relation to pre-tribulation. The restrainer in 2 Thessalonians 2, 6, which refers to the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit uh, at work through the body of Christ during the church age supports a pre-trib rapture. And we see in 2 Thessalonians 2, 6, and 7, it says, and you know what restrains him? And so the word restrains neuter, which it naturally is, uh, him now, so that in his time he may be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains, and it shifts uh, to masculine, showing that it's a person. So this is a reference, we believe, without getting into all the weeds, uh, to the Holy Spirit, to God. We'll do so until he's taken out of the way. And so we believe because of the nature of the church where the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, then all the things that make the church age unique to other periods of time are going to be removed. The Holy Spirit was in the world helping people get saved from Adam and Eve on up, and he still be there enabling people to get saved. But the indwelling ministry and the, the ministries that are unique to the church age will be removed. And you revert back to what? And this, I think, further support for pre-tribulation to the 70th week of Daniel, that uncompleted period in Israel's history. Since the lawless one, the Antichrist, cannot be revealed until the restrainer, the Holy Spirit, is taken away, the tribulation cannot begin until the church is removed. And I'm thinking, boy, it's getting pretty bad now, isn't it? And just think, that's a restrained time that we're living in. And then 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 2, it says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. Now, this is a, a, a Granville Sharp construction, meaning 
that the phrase coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together have to refer to the same event. So this is talking about the rapture, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy or the departure comes first. Now, this is a big translation error that was made, I think, by the King James. And before that, you have all the way back to the Latin Vulgate, all translated, and, and the first eight or nine uh, English translations translated departure. Now, apostasy, so what did the King James translator do? They punted, and they created a brand new English word called apostasy. And they transliterated the word, which refers to departure from the faith, at least in other contexts. But here, I believe it's a reference to the rapture. And this is a, a, a if it is, it's a very clear uh, teaching about that. So here's the translation history. You can see how everybody translated departure and then the, the evil black uh, Catholic Bible reams translated it revolt because they wanted it to refer to the Protestant Re Reformation, you see. And so the King James translators were reacting to the Reims translation and translated it apostasy and created that word, uh, the, referring to the Roman Catholics apostasy or departure from the faith. But it means departure. And uh, even the Puritan Bible, the Geneva Bible, translated it that way because that's, that's the, the core meaning of the word, departure. And I think it refers to the rapture. So the restrainer in 2 Thessalonians 2.6, which refers to the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit at work through the body of Christ during the current church age, supports a pre-trib rapture. We see in 2 Thessalonians 2.6-7, and you know what restrains him so that in his time he may be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. Didn't already do that? I thought so. Okay, so we've already talked about that. How'd that get in there? Um, oh, I put it in there. Also, you, you have the church being a spiritual, said to be a spiritual temple, and you have God's presence re being removed before judgment. This is some in the weeds type argument here. And so, God has to remove the church before he can bring judgment, as was the pattern in the Old Testament-related temple. Since a church is a spiritual temple, then that's got to be removed. So the rapture teaching, you know, uh, 30 years ago when I started working for LaHaye, we did not know of anybody that taught the preacher of rapture before Darby. And I have an article in our journal at Calvary showing uh, 45 pre-Darby rapture statements. We've done a little research since then, and we have found at least 45. And that's mainly uh, from English uh, things before Darby, all the way back to the 200s and throughout history. Primarily, uh, once the Reformation got going, there, there are dozens of those. So 
but the early church taught eminence that Christ would come at any moment, which implies a preacher of rapture. You have the shepherd of Hermes talks about the possibility of escaping the tribulation. You have what's called pseudo Ephraim, one of those finds from 387 clearly talks about uh, the rapture uh, of believers being taken out before the tribulation, it says. And then Brother Dalcino is some guy that lived up in the hills persecuted by the Catholics, and he taught a form of pre-tribulation in 1304. And these are just part of them. Thomas Collier, a Puritan, describes a pre-trib rapture but rejects it in 1674. John Askell taught an any-moment translation in the 1700s, and he was in the Irish and British Parliament. And because of his book on the rapture, he was excommunicated from both parliaments and put into prison for the last 30 years of his life. Shows you it wasn't a friendly environment, uh, even in merry old England for that. Morgan Edwards, 1744, uh, who founded an Ivy League school in America later, and uh, his uh, essay on the rapture was translated, he wrote it in Latin back in England, and it was translated into uh, English in 1788. And I found a copy in um, the Library of Congress, and he is the father of American Baptist history. And he went all up and down the East Coast, and I'm sh this was the only sermon he had uh, printed. And I'm sure he talked about this in that way that we didn't even know about. So Francis Gumerlach, who is a preterist post-millennialist has three file drawers he says full of pre-trib stuff and he's published four of those so far uh, and he's a, he's an opponent of our view but he's honest historian and so uh, 35 pre-Darby rapture statements there in our journal uh, and you can email me at iced I used to be a drink, but now I'm a rapper. <clears throat> at at pre-trib.org, and I will send you a copy of these journals uh, for free, PDFs, and if you're interested in this. So just email me that. Well, with so the, the practical motivation is that pre-trib rapture leads to holy living. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he's pure, fixed on him. And it always has been a boon for evangelism. If you believe Christ could come at any moment, when you think of that, the implications are, I better tell folks about the Lord. And then historically, it's been a boon for world missions. And I don't have time to get off on that, but most of the early uh, missionaries believed in this uh, from the 1800s on. Now, the question is, will you be taken in the rapture, of course? Well, with that, I'm out of here. So <laughs> let's pray. Father, we thank you for the blessed hope that we have in Christ, that at any moment you could take us to be with you. But until you do, our work is not finished. And we pray that we would be a faithful bride uh, fulfilling what it is that you've called us to do. And I pray that this belief that we as IFCA members believe will be a motivation for, for even 
greater service for you until you come. In Christ's name we pray, amen.